If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Micah. The book of Micah. And when you get there, go to chapter 5. We're actually going to be in two places this morning. Uh, the first text we're going to read is Micah 5, 1 through 5a. And then later on, I'll guide you, of course, uh, we will go to Matthew and chapter 2. But uh, first we're going to start in Micah and chapter 5. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, we're taking a break uh, from Luke until February. And so we're going to start a, a series next week on the book of Jonah. Okay, so um, we'll spend January going through Jonah. And so if you want a scripture journal, there's two different ones that you can get. The only difference is in the design. Um, pick one up between now and then there at the welcome desk. They are $4 American, okay? But uh, for this morning, Micah 5, I hope you are there. If you need to use your table and contents, there's no shame in your game. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. Let's go ahead and read this together. Micah in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. The Holy Spirit says through the prophet Micah, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Amen. This is God's word to make God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Christmas season is unique in a lot of ways, isn't it? We, we have things for Christmas that we don't have any other time of year. Uh, besides kidnapping trees from their natural habitats and putting them inside the house and then throwing lights on the outside of the house, uh, one of the major things that makes Christmas unique is its music, right? By this I mean, no other holiday has its own genre of music. Uh, you don't hear about Thanksgiving music or Labor Day music or Memorial Day music, right? Easter is another holy holiday, but while we have resurrection songs, we don't have a genre called Easter music, nor debates about when it's appropriate to start singing or playing them like we have for Christmas, and even though we may play them only for a month or two, we hear them on such a continuous loop that they sort of fade into the background, don't they? But we've heard all of the familiar ones, we know what they say, and they make for a good soundtrack to our Christmas busyness. But do we lock into them and consider what they're actually saying? You know, one song that you may be somewhat familiar with, but not, surely not as familiar as other songs, is one we sang just a few minutes ago called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. The story that led to the writing of that song is, is a tragic one that maybe some of you may be familiar with. It was written by a gentleman. His name was Henry Longfellow, and he wrote in the 1860s. Longfellow and his wife had six children, and one of them had joined the Union Army during the Civil War, only months before he wrote the song. Well, two years before he wrote the song, uh, Longfellow's wife and mother of his six children had died after her dress had caught on fire. And Longfellow witnessed this, he saw it happen, and he tried to put the fire out with a rug first and then his own body 
to no avail. He suffered facial burns, which were so severe that he was unable to attend his own wife's funeral. And he would grow a beard to hide his burned face. And at times he feared that he would be sent to asylum on account of his grief. Well, on November 27, 1863, two years after his wife had tragically died, while involved in a skirmish during the Battle of Mine Run campaign, Longfellow's oldest son, Charlie, was shot through the left shoulder, and the bullet exited his right shoulder blade, and it traveled across his back and it skimmed his spine, and Charlie avoided being paralyzed by less than an inch. Justin Taylor writes this, On Christmas Day, 1863... Longfellow, a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of which had been nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and dissonance in his own heart and the world he observed around him. He heard the bells that Christmas day and the singing of peace on earth, but he observed the world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of this optimistic outlook. When Longfellow wrote the song, it had seven verses, though two of them you will rarely, if ever, hear in renditions of the song, and you'll, they're missing from most hymnals. They go like this. He said, Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. So we can picture, as I do, Longfellow sitting there on Christmas Day in the middle of a war in which brother killed brother, and after all he had gone through, and he sits and he hears these songs of peace on earth, and the bells ringing out, and him feeling a disconnect between what he was hearing and what was reality. Peace on earth? What peace on earth? Goodwill to men? Who has goodwill towards one another? So he said to himself, and he's right there in the lyrics, in despair, there is no peace on earth. Hate is strong, he said, and mocks the song that people sing of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Well, thankfully, Longfellow doesn't end on that dour note, but he says next what we sang, then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Weariness mingled with hope. Longfellow seemed to understand Christmas better than most. Christmas is not, as some might suppose, that this, the story that Jesus came into the world to offer us an unending street party in this life. Rather, what we see in Bethlehem's manger is what another Christmas hymn captured most profoundly. The hopes and fears of all these years are met in thee tonight. This is the spirit of the text we're considering this morning. Contextually, in Micah 5, we meet a people who are afraid and they have a feeling of helplessness. They're surrounded by this evil Assyrian empire. Their overthrow and subsequent exile in the hands of the Babylonians is being foretold here in this book. And this is roughly 700 years before the incarnation of Jesus. And 200 years before the book we looked at last week, Malachi was written. Hope is offered in this text amidst the pains of life, but how long must we wait, asked the people. There's a sense of gloom that permeates this book. The people are confused, they're humiliated, they feel abandoned of God. Where is God anyway? What is he up to? Does anyone understand what we're going through? Who will save us? Micah, sent by God, comes in the midst of this to offer hope to the people in the form of a prophecy about a king who is to come. 
who is unlike any king past or present. This coming king will be everything their current king failed to be. He will do everything this current king failed to do. And as the people are in the midst of a dark and difficult time, they want to know, where are we to look? Can they look to the king, Hezekiah? He's the king. He's supposed to shepherd us. Can we look to him for help, they wonder? Well, no, actually, he's part of the problem. He's a wicked and evil king, which is why his fate is sealed and foretold in verse 1. Did you see it? What's his fate? Humiliation. The rod that he carries as a ruler and judge of Israel will be taken from him, and he himself will be struck by it. In other words, the scepter that was to signify his kingship and royal authority and his shepherding of these people will be snatched from him, and he'll be beaten with it. How can he save us when he can't even save himself from personal abuse? So where can they look for deliverance? If not the king, then who? Well, they're actually supposed to look to a king, aren't they? But not the one they would expect, and not from whence they would expect it to come. God, through Micah, tells them that there will be a king who is coming, and he's the opposite of Hezekiah and all the wicked kings in Israel's history. So where are they to look? It would make sense, yes, to look at Jerusalem, the seat of Judah's king. It would make sense to look at the royal palace. Surely if the king is to come, he will come to the most important city that we have, right? <coughs> but in a surprising move, Micah tells us to look past Jerusalem, look past all the important cities, look past all the places you would expect the king to come from, and settle your eyes where? to Bethlehem. Now, you and I, with the benefit of hindsight, have warm and fuzzy feelings about Bethlehem, don't we? We sing about it in our Christmas songs. We put our nativity scenes together, imagine them in this town of Bethlehem. Our feelings are positive. But we've seen the puzzle put together, as it were. Whereas these people in Micah's day, they're simply getting pieces of the puzzle of redemption history. You know when you get a puzzle and you dump it out, all the pieces, how they're just randomly in this pile, right? And none of it makes sense. They're like that. The people of Micah's days are like that, but they don't have the front of the box to show them what the thing looks like when it's put together. We get to look back, right, through redemption history, knowing how the pieces fit together because we have the whole Bible. So we look at the prophecy of the king coming from Bethlehem and we go, yeah, that makes sense. That's not how they would have read these words. They would have said, Bethlehem, why Bethlehem? See, it, was, it isn't that they had a negative view of Bethlehem, like people would come to have a view of Nazareth when Jesus showed up, when they asked, can anything good come from there? They have a low opinion of Bethlehem as much as they had no opinion of it at all. It was so insignificant. It was so small. It was so unimportant in every way. And you look at your text again, Micah stresses this important, you, this truth. You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It was so insignificant that when Joshua listed all the clans of cities of Israel, it didn't even make the top 100. It had no political significance whatsoever. It couldn't even supply an army unit at times of tribal levy. In modern times, we might think of, have you ever been to a town that doesn't even have one stoplight? That's Bethlehem. So small was Bethlehem that Micah supplied the people with its region so that they know where it is. You, you, you know, you, you don't do that with important cities, do you? We don't need to say New York, New York. We don't need to say Paris, France, or London, England. You just say New York, Paris, and London, right? Because they're so significant 
by themselves that you need no other caveats. Not so with Bethlehem. So in times of gloom and despair and helplessness, where were the people to look? Not to the high hills of power, but to a small town in the country. That's what Micah says. The redeemer of the world. The king of all things. The promised one who sits on the throne of David forever. The one who will save his people from their sins. He will come from this place you might not have ever heard of and couldn't point to on a map. But God acts in surprising and unexpected ways, doesn't he? Tim Keller says this, the world insists if anybody has the answers, they have to come from certain places. They have to come from people with certain credentials. They have to come from people who look a certain way, who have gone to certain schools. They have to come from New York City, not Mississippi. They have to come from a Harvard professor, not someone with just a high school diploma. The Bible's teaching, however, is not only that God does not operate like that, but he habitually operates in the very opposite way. Why did God choose Bethlehem of all places for the birthplace of the Messiah? It wasn't only because the Messiah would come from David's line and thus be fulfillment of the covenant God made with David that someone from his line would sit on the throne forever. That's one of the reasons, but it's not the only reason. There's more going on here. So why Bethlehem? This is why it's telling us who Jesus came for. He comes for the weak and the little, the people who the world deems insignificant or unimportant. He comes for the broken and the needy. He comes for those society is slanted against. He comes for the marginalized and the vulnerable and the outcast. He comes for those who have no power or prestige in this world, and that's good news. In his Christmas sermon in 1530, Martin Luther said it this way. He said, if Christ had arrived with trumpets and laying in a cradle of gold, his birth would have been a splendid affair, but it would not comfort me. He was rather to lay in the lap of a poor maiden and he be thought of little significance in the eyes of the world. Now I could come to him. Now he reveals himself to the miserable. But upon his return on that day when he will oppose the high and mighty, it will be different. Now he comes to the poor who need a savior, but then he will come as a judge against those who are persecuting him now. Everything about the nativity story speaks to this, doesn't it? Matthew gives us Jesus' genealogy and who's among them? Just a bunch of ragamuffins. Jesus is born in a room where animals are kept and placed in a stone feeding trough. The announcement is given to the shepherds who are on the bottom rung of society. This is good news. The king who surpasses all kings, the one who brings true hope and rescue, he came for the least and the last. For people who are sinners and know it. For people who are weak and need a strong man. For people who see there is hope found in nowhere else. That the Messiah would come from Bethlehem shows that God's way of salvation is contrary to the expectations of men. He loves to use unlikely instruments so as to better display his glory. And he intends to show that true hope lies in his sovereign grace and not through human effort, merit, cunning, or intellect. The choice of Bethlehem tells us that we need something we cannot provide for ourselves. It tells us that God does not save according to human ability or prestige, or attempts at goodness. It tells us that whatever plans or schemes or projects we might come up with to try to save ourselves or to bring us meaning and purpose and value, it won't work. 
It tells us that God's way is not our way and that whatever, we might, whatever way we might expect God to work, his ways will always exceed our comprehension. One would expect God to bring forth his king from Jerusalem, right? Or Rome or some other prominent place. One would expect God would bring his king to be the champion of the powerful and the strong and the worthy because that's how our Darwinian minds have been conditioned to expect in our world slanted towards the powerful and against the weak. But that's not what God does, is it? You guys remember the movie Rudolph the Red-Nosed Red, Red Reindeer that came out in 1964? You remember that in that movie there's an island? Do you guys remember the island? With the misfit toys, right? Essentially, what is it? Jolly old Saint Nick takes the toys that are deficient and broken and not good enough to be given to children on Christmas Day, and he just dumps them on this island. He says, no one would want these toys. They're different. They're broken. They're incomplete. And you know, in the original version, it's been changed now, but the, in, the, in the original version of the movie, there's no resolution given. These misfit toys are left on this island seemingly forever. Why? Because there's something wrong with them. Surely no one would write, want them, right? That makes sense to our world. Who would want the broken and deficient? Who would want those who have strange quirks that the world abandons and disregards? Christmas said, says God wants the broken and deficient. God wants the abandoned and alone. Christmas says that we're actually all broken like misfit toys. And only those who recognize that truth will be restored because only the broken are in need of restoration. Don't you see? God chose Bethlehem to tell us that we need a Savior. And we need a Savior who identifies and comes for the lowly. So unless you're lowly, unless you're the weak, unless you're the unable, you'll have no place for the one who comes for the lowly, weak, and unable. Only when we acknowledge we are broken can we be restored. We have a problem, though, don't we? We don't want to admit any of those things, do we? Who wants to be weak? Who wants to be vulnerable? Who wants to admit inability? We want to be strong. We want to be capable. We want to be independent. We want to be shown to be impressive before people. But as long as we hold on to some semblance of our own ability and our own strength and our desire for acclaim and fear of being shown to be weak, we'll be lost. Because we'll fancy ourselves as those who don't need the outside rescue of a king born in squalor. But if we admit need and go to Christ for rescue, we could boast only in him and never in ourselves. John Piper said it this way, God chose a stable so no innkeeper might boast. He chose my inn. God chose a manger so that no woodworker would boast. He chose the craftsmanship of my bed. He chose Bethlehem so no one could boast. The greatness of our city constrained the divine choice. He says the divine choice of little Bethlehem as the place of the incarnation is essentially the message of justification by faith apart from works. Bethlehem means that God does not bestow the blessing of salvation on the basis of our merit or our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or grandeur or distinction. When he chooses, he chooses in freedom in order to magnify the glory of his mercy. Do you see? But look what else the text says. 
God says to Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. And check this out. Who's coming forth, do you see it? Who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is no average king, is it? God says, he will be for me. All of these other kings and politicians, then as now, serve for their own interests. They serve themselves. They had their own agendas and their own goals and their own glory as their aim. What about this king? He will be for God. God's glory will be his aim. It is God's will that will be his focus. His coming forth is from old, from ancient days. What is that saying? See, as the people of Micah's day look forward to this coming king and his birth in that small town, they must realize that he's, his going forth doesn't start in the future. Indeed, he is from eternity. That's what it's saying. He has been going forth. He is going forth, and he will be going forth. Here's the paradox of Christmas, right? The Savior who will be born has always been. He will be born, but he has no beginning. He will be a baby, but he holds all things together. He will come from Mary's womb, but he's the one who created Mary. He will be a dependent and vulnerable baby who is also not dependent on anyone or anything. He who is unbound by space and time will come and live in space and time. He who creates and owns all things is rich above anything we can fathom, was born in an insignificant town amidst animals and visited by shepherds. No mere human king would do, you understand. God is telling the people through Micah that he would indeed be a human, but he would also be the ancient one who is from old. He would be both God and man. He would come from Bethlehem, but before that, he would come from heaven. An illustration I like to use at Christmas is uh, one C.S. Lewis gave, and he gave it in response to something the Soviet leaders said. See, in 1961, Russia sent the first man into space. Uh, you remember that crack, right? Um, <laughs> they, sent the <laughs> they sent the first man into space, and the Soviet leaders said that when his cosmonaut went into space... He discovered there was no God there. He said he went up to the heavens and he found no God. Well, in response to this, C.S. Lewis wrote an article that you could look up to this day. It's called The Seen Eye. And in it, Lewis said that if there was a God who created us, we could not discover him by going up into the sky. He said we wouldn't discover God like a downstairs neighbor would discover their upstairs neighbor by simply climbing the stairs to the second floor. And so Lewis said, think of Shakespeare. He asked, how would Hamlet, who of course is a character in the play Shakespeare wrote by the same name, how would Hamlet know who Shakespeare was? How, how could Hamlet know that Shakespeare exists? There's only one way, right? Shakespeare, the creator of Hamlet, would have to write himself into the play to meet Hamlet. Lewis said, if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could initiate nothing. Now, do you see that God actually has done this? He has written himself into our story because it would take nothing less than this to bring us into relationship with him. We don't just need a king. We needed a king who was from old. We needed a king who was both God and man. And in the incarnation of Jesus, we have the creator God who tells Micah these prophecies 
and one who becomes human in order to identify with the lowly and die for the guilty. Have you heard more incredible news than this, my friend? What we need, says Micah, is a shepherd. Do you see that? Why? Because we have, like sheep, gone astray. Everyone has gone his or her own way because we are utterly incapable of leading ourselves. Because left to our own devices, we will, like sheep, walk off a cliff, be prey to wolves, and drink dirty water. We need a shepherd who will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, says Micah, because every other strength is frail. We need a shepherd who will help us to dwell secure. We need a shepherd who will give us peace. And what is the peace that we need most of all? Last week I mentioned to you this ad that ran in the New York Times several years ago. Do you remember? It said the meaning of Christmas. This ad said the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words... We have the light within us, and so we are the ones who could dispel the darkness of the world. We could overcome poverty, injustice, and violence, and evil. It says if we work together, we create a world of unity and peace. Let's put that to the test, okay? The last century has been the most technologically advanced in human history, hasn't it? We have made technological gains at a pace that is almost unfathomable. So my question is, what did we do with that? There were good things to be sure, such as advances in medicines that saved lives. But you know what else we did with these technological gains? We killed more people than in any century in human history. That's what we did. We made more ways to kill each other. In the 20th century, you know is the bloodiest century in human history. So we advanced in incredible ways, but did... We bring about peace or more war. Have our advances, have our learning, has our ingenuity bring us peace either with one another or with God? Who could bring us peace? Indeed, who can himself embody peace? Only this shepherd king who comes from of old and is yet born in an insignificant town in Palestine 700 years hence for the people of Micah's day 2,000 years ago in our case. And what peace will he bring? What peace do we need the most of all? The peace we need the most is peace with God. How will he do it? By entering flesh because he needed flesh in order to die in the place of people who are at enmity with God. In other words, you and me. As somebody once said, Jesus did not come to save us from the enemy, but he came to save us, the enemy. The peace we need the most is peace with our creator because on our own, we're at war with him. Haven't you seen through all of this talk of weakness and brokenness that if we can't save ourselves, then that means we can't make peace with God on our own? We can't even make peace with one another. How can we make peace with God? We're putting it all together now, aren't we? God wrote himself into our story to bear the punishment of our war with God so that we can have peace with God and can be shepherded towards streams of living water. Do you see? He was born at Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread, so that he could, as a 17-year-old hymn says, to give himself as our heavenly food, to be the bread of life. He was born in insignificant Bethlehem so that those who feel insignificant can come to him. 
He was born into poverty so that those who have nothing can come to him with their empty hands and say, this is all I got. To which he says, that's enough. Because I who am rich became poor so that those who are poor can become rich in me. So the question that must be asked now is, how will you respond to these truths? How will you respond to these truths? Let's fast forward 700 some years to the fulfillment of Micah 5 and let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Let's get our time machine, go 700 years into the future to Matthew and chapter 2 and let's read verses 1 through 12. And it'll be behind me on the screen as well. Let's read this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from, that, from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, just like Micah said he would. The everlasting God has taken on flesh, light of light, and very God of very God has condescended to be everything Micah describes and more. Now, some magi come from the east, could be China or South Asia, we're not told, somewhere from the east, and they come to Palestine under Roman dominion. These non-Jews come, these people outside of the covenant, show up to see the king who was born, and that fulfills, yes, Micah 5, what he says, that this king's name will be great throughout the earth, and that his salvation will include people from every tribe, tongue, peoples, and nations. Somehow, these men know that the king of Jews has been born. And so where do they go? They go where you'd expect, just like we said earlier, right? To the largest city, Jerusalem, to the most important person in all the land, King Herod and his royal palace. They say, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. How does Herod react? What's it say? He's troubled. Why is he troubled? Because he is an illegitimate king who has been appointed for political reasons. He wasn't born king. He was appointed king by Caesar. But if there's a king born who's legitimate king, that king would threaten his rule, yes? Herod feels threatened by this baby. So he gathers these glad-handing priests and scribes together and asks, does your holy book say anything about this? Where is this king to be born? And the scribes and priests know their Bibles, don't they? They cite Micah 5 too. They say, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod gets the Magi and tells them to go find this child. And he lies, doesn't he? He says, I just want to go and pay homage to him. 
Magi leave and they follow the star, appeared over Bethlehem. They found Jesus, who's no longer in a stable, but in a house. So our nativity scenes got it wrong, don't they? And look at how they reacted in verse 10. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like Matthew is struggling to convey the pure, abounding joy that the Magi felt at the birth of this true king. Essentially, Matthew says that they rejoiced with great rejoicing. Their joy was unbound and without limit. Then what do they do in verse 11? They saw the child and they fell down and worshipped him. And then they gave him gifts. Now, do you see the options for how to respond to this news of God in the flesh coming to be the true shepherd king. Do you see them? There are three responses in Matthew 2, but really there are only two, aren't they? You could reject him, you could be apathetic towards him, or you could worship him. Those are the three options. The first two are ultimately the same, though, aren't they? Apathy is the same as rejection. But make no mistake, my friend, you must understand this. You will react in one of these ways to this message today. What will it be? You can respond like Herod and the scribes and priests. Herod responded with anger and rejection that there could be another king except him. He reacted by saying, there can only be one king and it must be me. So he rejected Jesus and his rule, didn't he? But why? Because it was a threat to his own. And you might be here today, and you might reject Jesus because you don't want to give up the reins of kingship of your life. You're like Herod. Jesus is a threat to your rule. You don't think anyone should be king over your life but you. You don't think anyone could be as good as a king as you are. It doesn't matter if your reign is illegitimate. You're the master of your fate. You're the captain of your soul, and no one is going to come and edge you out. Keller says once more, if you want to be king, and someone else comes along saying he is king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on the absolute throne, according to the Bible, says Keller. The evil of the world ultimately stems from the self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-absorption of every human heart. Each of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and desires. We don't want to serve God or our neighbor. We want them to serve us. In every heart, then, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that might compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Where's the true king? That question is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. Would you be like Herod? All of us are naturally Herods. But would we continue to retain kingship on our lives when confronted with the truth that the great true king has landed and that he is God in the flesh? If we can't get ourselves out of the messes that we cause, if we can't save ourselves, if we can't fix our brokenness, if we can't make peace with God, how can we fancy ourselves good kings and queens of our own lives? In a similar vein, you could respond like the priests and scribes. They were indifferent, weren't they? You ever think about them? Here they were, experts in the law, and they knew that this prophecy from Micah was being fulfilled in their midst. And what do they do with this info? Nothing. They do nothing. Now, you could leave today, and you could say, I don't reject Jesus. I know I'm a bad king but I don't want to submit to him either. 
I'm not against him, but I'm not going to give my life and devotion over to him either. I'm indifferent to this gospel and this news that the king has come, like the scribes and the priests. Well, that makes you like Herod, doesn't it? Even if you think you're, you aren't making a choice, indifference is rejection. Indifference is continuing to keep your hands on the reins of your life. Or maybe your indifference is just a yawning one. You've heard this story before, right? You think you get it. You just want me to shut up so you could get along with your day. But let me ask you this. Can you say you truly understand this story if you can yawn at it? Do you actually get in your heart of hearts what is happening in the first Christmas if it doesn't excite your heart and get your blood racing and get you as excited as a child on Christmas morning rushing towards the tree? This is an unfathomable, earth-shattering truth. Would we yawn at it? Well, you can be indifferent if you choose, or you could respond like the Magi do. When do you think if anyone was going to come and worship the king, it would be the priests and scribes who have been waiting for the Messiah and have known this prophecy? Instead, we get some Gentiles from outside Israel who come and worship Jesus. They worship a baby. Why? Because they see him for who he is, the true and rightful king, the shepherd they need. And they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They bring to him what they can. They bow down and they worship him. That's the right response. But not as a one-time act, as a posture of life. How else can one respond with the news that God has come and entered into our mess in order to save us and shepherd us and bring us peace with him. Would you fall at his feet and worship him? Would you rejoice at the best news of all? Would you rejoice, receive this unmerited gift from our unobligated giver? You surely are familiar with the trend that it seems to have waned, I think, in, in recent years called Elf on a Shelf. How many of you guys do that wacky, you don't want, you know where I'm going with this, right? Uh, I'm, you're not admitting it. Well, it was a trend that started back in 2005, if you're unfamiliar with this book, that came with this little creepy elf doll, right? That looked like something out of a, a horror movie. The idea is that that would come to life and kill people, right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, the idea is that the elf is sort of a spy, right? For our old Saint Nick. He ends up in all kinds of different places throughout the house, and he sees you when you're sleeping, and he knows when you're awake, and he could go back, right, and report to HQ in the North Pole regarding your behavior. Well, the purpose is either to get kids used to the idea of being under constant surveillance or to motivate them to be good. After all, that's how, isn't that how Santa operates? If you do good, you what? You get good. If you do bad, you what? Get bad. The idea is to elicit slightly better behavior from your kids. To drive home into their little minds that good things are merited with corresponding behavior and bad things are merited with bad behavior. If you don't get good, it's because you didn't earn it. That's what we're teaching them, right? This is, let's be honest, a way to coerce a change in conduct. Maybe it'll work for the month that the elf is with us, but it won't change the heart, will it? Jesus isn't after coerced devotion or external half-hearted worship. He isn't after good behavior from a heart that is bad and unchanged by him. He also wants us to know that none of us have landed on the nice list, as it were. 
None of us have merited good things. I don't care how dope you think you are. You haven't merited good things. You haven't merited salvation. You haven't merited peace with God. None of us have merited shepherding from the only good shepherd that has ever lived. Today, Jesus isn't going to coerce you to rejoice exceedingly, and he isn't going to force you to submit to his kingship, and he isn't going to stop you from leaving today, yawning at the truth that God came to take on flesh to die in your place. You have to choose yourself. So what will it be? Will you be like Herod, retaining kingship over your life even though the rightful king has come? Will you be like the priests and scribes being indifferent to the coming of the promised Messiah who fulfills all of the Old Testament? Or will you be like the Magi, rejoicing, bowing, worshiping, giving of self, following him as king forever? You have to choose today, and you will. Kent Hughes said, it's not enough to hear about Jesus. It's not enough to peek into the manger and say, oh, how nice, what a lovely scene. It gives me such good feelings. The truth is, even if Christ were born in Bethlehem a thousand times, but not within you, you would be eternally lost. The Christ who was born into the world must be born in your heart. Religious sentiment, even at Christmas time, without the living Christ, is a yellow brick road to darkness. You see? We must not simply acknowledge all that we talked about today as true with our heads. We need these truths to take root in our hearts. The first choices, rejection and indifference, they lead directly to hell. Because it's our choosing in this life and the next to have it our way and to live without God as our king. And so God says, let it be so. I'll give you what you want. Only bowing our knee and worshiping the incarnate Christ will lead to life. Don't you see? Only when these truths ruin our hearts and take root in our very souls can we live now and forever at peace and fellowship and love with our God. Dorothy L. Sayers, maybe you've heard of her before, was an author, and she was writing on the Incarnation. She said this, For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it well worthwhile. He thought it well worthwhile. He thought you were worthwhile. Do you think he is worth all that you are? I don't know what your situation is today. I don't know if you're coming into today firmly perched on the throne of your life. I don't know if you have regarded yourself as a Christian, but have lived indifferent to Jesus for weeks, months, or years. I don't know if you regard yourself as a pretty good person who means well, God will understand, and you live as you want to live, thinking you'll end up on the nice list in the end. I don't know if if you are someone who feels weak and afraid and lonely on Christmas. I don't know if you're someone who feels like today is a bittersweet day where you celebrate, but you also mourn a missing person from the table. I don't know if you are someone who didn't really want to come today, (laughs) but felt obligated or was dragged here by family. 
I don't know if you are someone who feels inferior, small, insignificant, weak, unsure, unknown, and that you can never measure up. I don't know what you're feeling right now, but I know this. Whatever place you find yourself, the answer is the same. To go again to the feeding trough that housed the Savior of the world, who now occupies the highest seat in the universe. Find your rest in a strong Savior who delights to be the strength of the weak. Rejoice and rest in him. Find in him a king who identifies with the lowly. Bow to him, worship him, and find in him your all in all this Christmas and every day.